making that same point again, perhaps in a new way. Um, another thing, another technique that John uses is he uses a technique um, called dichotomies. And so what is a dichotomy? So let's, let's play a little game. Um, if I say hot, you would probably say, okay. If I say on, you would say, if I said tall, you would say, okay, so you're getting the hang of dichotomy. Dichotomy is this idea of a division in two mutually exclusive or contradictory groups. So um, Christine last week introduced us to two dichotomies that John uses already. He uses the um, dichotomies of light versus dark when he said that God is light and in him there's no darkness at all. And he used these contrasting ideas of walking in the light and walking in darkness. And another dichotomy that we were introduced to last week, Christine talked about, is truth versus lie. These, we saw these show up in these statements of if we claim... If we claim we have no sin, then we're fooling ourselves and we are um, not living in the truth. So truth versus lie. Today we're going to look at three more dichotomies that show up in these first 17 verses of 1 John chapter 2. And here they are. Obedience versus disobedience. Love versus hate. And the fleeting versus the eternal. So where are we going? How are we going to look at these dichotomies? Here it is. We are going to talk about a reality check. Oh, sorry, 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 sorry. Okay, there we go. <laughs> Obedience versus disobedience, love versus hate, and fleeting versus eternal. And I promise they will come back around. So you're welcome. I get carried away. All right. We good? Or at least mostly. Okay, great. This is how we're going to walk through those. We are going to talk, Paul, or Paul, guys, I do, ladies, you're ladies. I do this all the time. I say Paul all the time. So please forgive me. And if I forget to catch myself, just know I'm talking about John. Okay? All right, great. So John is going to give us a quick reality check. Then we are going to see a litmus test um, that covers those first two dichotomies. Then he interrupts everything as he is prone to do and gives us a little encouragement. And then we see that third dichotomy in oh, the form of a warning. So here we go. The reality check. So um, remember these Scripture is given to us today in chapter and verse, and that is not how it came to the original readers, hearers, learners. It came just in one chunk that a lot of times they sat down and heard all at one time. So when we look at 1 John 2, 1 through 2, um, it feels like these are a continuation. These two verses are a continuation of the verses that we covered last week. Um, in 1, five, verses 5 through 10. And when he says, um, he says, I'm writing this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we had an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He's Jesus Christ, the one who's truly righteous. He himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins, not only ours, but the sins of the world. And these verses start off a little confusing to me. I'm writing to you so that you will not sin. 
But John just finished telling us that if we say we have no sin, then we're lying. So which is it? We have no sin and we're lying or we don't sin. Where? I mean, what's going on? So let's take a page from John's book and let's circle back to um, chapter 1, verse 5. And he tells us there, that God is light and in him is no darkness. So that dichotomy again of contrasting light versus dark, contrasting holiness versus evil. And also in chapter 1 verse 7, he tells us if we walk in the light as he is in the light. So the implication here is that we're walking in holiness as the Lord is holy. So our reality check here is that... um, Our reality check is that sinfulness still exists. We live in the already and the not yet. Paul, and yes, I mean Paul this time, tells us in Romans that we are no longer slaves to sin when we've been set free in Christ. We do not have to sin. But the reality is that we are not yet fully free um, of the fight against our sinful nature. In verse 2, John acknowledges that reality of sin in our lives when he says that if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. And he circles back to the idea that he introduced in chapter 1, verse 9, that God is faithful and just to forgive our sins when we confess them. And John points out that Jesus has two roles for us before the Father. And here are those two roles. He is our advocate and he is our atonement. First, he's our advocate. This is legal term. He um, is pleading our case before the Father. He is, um, I don't know if I really want to say he's a defense attorney, but this is the kind of idea that we can um, have in our mind, that we are standing um, convicted as guilty, And Jesus is pleading our case before the Father. And he is our atonement. So we're convicted as guilty, and Jesus acknowledges our guilt. Like, he doesn't write it off. He says, yeah, we, we have sinned. We are guilty, but I have paid the price. And he pleads before the Father that the Father looks on his sacrifice in our place. He is the atonement that appeases God's Um, wrath against sin and permits relationship with God again. Um, I, I think these things are important to remember as we are battling against our sinful nature. Um, Ray Van Nest says that we kill our sin, not by hiding it or excusing it, but by openly confessing it and depending on Jesus. Okay, so that's clearing up that one a little bit. So now, back to those verses in chapter 1 where John is saying, if we say, then, how do we know that what we say about living in him or what others say about living in him and walking in the light is true? Well, John is offering us a litmus test in verse 3 when he says, um, we can be sure that we know him if we obey his commandments. 
He puts it another way in verse 6, and I'm, I'm reading out of mostly the New Living Translation today, but I actually really like this verse in the NIV, so I'm going to read it this way. Um, verse 6 says, this is how we know we are in him. This is how we can be confident that we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. So when we're talking about obedience, we're talking about walking as Jesus walked. So that word walk, it comes up over and over and over again in the New Testament. And it's always um, used, the context of it is, the implication is that we are living. To walk is to live. So we can know that we are in God when we walk the talk. When we don't just say, we obey Walk the talk, say obey. We're rhyming this morning. How fun. Um, And these verses also give us the first, if you're looking in the ESV, you'll see the word abide. In most um, other translations, you might see the word to live or maybe to remain. Um, This is the first time we see it in 1 John. We talked about that being one of our themes, and here it is. It's showing up, abide. What does it mean to abide? Again, it means to remain to stay, to dwell, to make ourselves at home in the Lord. So if we say we are making God, making ourselves at home with God, if we say we're in intimate relationship with him, if we are fully grasping the hope of the gospel of Jesus, then we'll show it by living in obedience. Now, as someone who um, tends toward the black and white, this can be a struggle for me. Because I know that I am not always great at obeying. So part of me goes, okay, if I say I live in God, then I will obey. But I do know that sometimes I'm prone to disobedience, so I must not live in God. These are the circles that my head goes through a lot of times. So how can we know that we're speaking the truth when we say we know Jesus, but we know the reality of our own sin? And I think it's helpful to think of it this way. Are our lives oriented towards obedience? Is the arc of our story bending towards obedience or away from it? Circle back to 1 John, uh, or yeah, 1 John 1, 9 and um, 2, 1 through 2. Are we in a habit of confessing? We know that we are prone to wander. Are we in a habit of constantly making the turn to come back home? Hebrews reminds us that we can draw near to the throne of grace with confidence and there we'll find mercy and grace to help in our time of need. And so I wonder how might you be wandering today? Where might you find yourself needing to turn around and walk back home? Another struggle in this area for me is my own effort. I can, I love a good checklist. Um, I love seeing my, my little ticks next to my to-dos. And so when I think about obedience, sometimes it's real easy for me to like bootstrap it and, and power through. Um, but it doesn't work like that. Colossians 2.7 tells us to let our roots grow down into him, let our lives be built on him. Jesus himself reminds us in John 15 that we are to remain in him, that we can't be fruitful unless we are connected to him. And Galatians 5, and 23 tells us about the fruits of the Spirit. We 
if you've been in church for a while, then you can probably name them. Love, joy, peace, patience. These are fruits of the Spirit, the Spirit's work in us. So the more that we make our home in Jesus, the more that we understand the magnitude of his love for us, the the grandness of the thing that he has done for us, the more the Spirit will be able to work in our hearts and minds, and the more um, my actions, the more the life that I'm living will be a response, um, a response of obedience to the Lord. So, How can we be leaning into the Spirit, the work of the Spirit in our life? And how can we see our obedience as a response response to God's love toward us? So that's our first dichotomy, obedience and disobedience. And now we have another dichotomy. Um, If we are living obediently out of love for the Father, if we are walking the way Jesus walked, then we are going to love the way Jesus loved. And we see this in verses 7 through 11. And after lots of either-or language, John is giving us some both-and language here. He says that he writes um, an old commandment, and it's also a new commandment too. So here are the two questions. What is the commandment? And what does it mean that it is both an old and a new commandment? So let's drop down to verses 9 through 10 and look at them with me. If anyone claims I'm living in the light but hates a Christian brother or sister, that person is living in darkness. Anyone who loves another brother or sister is living in the light and doesn't cause others to stumble. So what is the commandment here? And that's not a rhetorical question. I'm hearing murmurings, but I'm not. Yes, to love our fellow believers. That's right. And this is not a warm, fuzzy feeling. Because I don't know about you, but I don't always feel warm and fuzzy towards everyone. But it is an act of our will. It's a choice. And this is um, a quote that is in your homework, if you got a chance to look through it. Um, This is from Jen Wilkin. This is the Greek word that's used for love in these verses, and she says that it's an act of the will, an intelligent, purposeful attitude of esteem and devotion to selfless, purposeful, outgoing attitude that desires to do good to the one loved. So as you look at that for a minute, what sticks out to you in that definition? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. So as you look at the things that are sticking out to you, how are you, um, how do you treat someone if you're having that kind of attitude? How do we make the choice? Um, I love the word esteem there. Um, and it means to set a high value on, to prize or to cherish accordingly. So what does it mean if I'm cherishing something or someone? What does that look like in my life? I think about that in terms of um, my children. And that can be a tricky thing, can it? 
So here is our other litmus test. If we say we are abiding, if we say that we're living and making our home in the light, then we'll love our brothers and sisters. Light and love go hand in hand. So then what does it mean that it's both an old and a new commandment? Well, old commandment. This has been a commandment from the beginning. God's character and his commandments have never changed. They are constant. They are true. They, there's, no, um, there's no changing in them. And Jesus himself points this out when he tells the experts in religious law that the entire law, the entire demands of the prophets can be summed up in two commands. Love the Lord your God and love others as yourself. It's an old commandment. It's not new. But here's the new part. We see a clearer and fuller expression of this commandment in Jesus. Um, If you, in your homework, they had you look up a couple of verses that showed you in Old Testament. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus tells us to love one another as, as I have loved you. So we're going from loving our neighbor as ourself to loving as Jesus loved. Um, Warren Wearsby says, in Christ we have a new illustration of the old truth. So before, we're using ourselves as a reference point. And I don't know about you, but I'm not always great at loving myself. If you could hear the way I talk to myself in my head sometimes, it's not particularly loving. Now, Jesus, that's a different ballgame. He speaks to me quite differently. And he's the standard by which we are measuring how we are loving others. So, in verse 8, John tells us that Jesus lived the truth of this commandment, lived the truth of loving others. And when we're walking as Jesus walked, John tells us that we are also living it. For the darkness is disappearing and the true light is already shining. Here's another already and not yet. The darkness is disappearing. It's a current happening action and the light is already shining. The kingdom of God has been ushered in. Jesus has shown us the kingdom, but it has not reached its full fulfillment, its full completion yet. So whenever Jesus said, I am the light of the world, he's ushering in the kingdom of God. And then he says to us in Matthew, you are the light of the world. And here's the tricky thing. We're shining with a derivative light. It's not a light that we produce on ourselves. We can only reflect the light that Jesus is shining on us. We can only love with the love that Jesus has given to us. And when we love each other as he loved us, we are participating in the coming of the kingdom. And we are holding out the hope of the light of Jesus to a dark world. Um, I think of it this way. Uh, this, we're, start, we're getting really close to my favorite time of year. I love spring so much. I love the new life and the flowers and the blue skies and the warm air, mostly warm air. Um, it is, I just love it so much. And you know my first hint that spring's coming? Daffodils. Daffodils. Love them so much. Daffodils. We as believers... When we are um, loving one another, when we are showing the light, we're daffodils. We are pointing to the coming of 
a beautiful and glorious kingdom. So, what does it mean to love? And how might we need to adjust the way we're living to more accurately reflect the light of Jesus' love? Now we get to our interruption for encouragement. This message brought to you by... So this idea of obedience, this idea of walking as Jesus walked and loving as Jesus loved, it feels really overwhelming and it feels like a really impossible task. So I don't think it's a coincidence that John interrupts himself here to offer us some encouragement. He's right to remind um, the church and various believers in various stages of maturity of the hope that is offered to us by the gospel. We are reminded that through the work of Christ, as our advocate and our atonement, we have forgiveness of our sins. That's done. We have knowledge of God. We can be in intimate relationship with him. And even though it feels like we are still struggling and fighting, we can be confident that the war with the evil one has already been won. And so when we abide in this hope, these truths of the gospel, we can find walking in light and in love a little bit easier. All right, last thing, the warning. This final dichotomy, this third dichotomy for today, the warning. We've seen our first two, obedience versus disobedience and love versus hate. And these John offered us as a litmus test for evaluating whether one is walking in the light, whether one knows God. Now we come to this final one, the fleeting versus the eternal, and we see it in the form of a warning and a promise. So look in verse 15, if you have your scripture with me, and does some, someone tell me what's the warning? Right. Don't love the world. That stands in opposite from what John just told us. We must love one another. Now we are not to love the world. So how do we define the world? And scripture also tells us the things of the world. Well, those are the things which stand in opposition to God. We're not talking about the physical planet. We're talking about this concept of living a sinful and rebellious life apart from God. And um, John tells us that these things of the world, a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, pride in our achievements and possessions. Is that sounding familiar? <laughs> Is anyone feeling convicted? Because I am. That's a, those are painful things to read. Um, what does it mean to love these things? It means to be enamored by them, to be infatuated by them, to be marked by foolish love or admiration. And John certainly sees these as foolish, this admiration as foolish, because he tells us that the world is fading away along with everything that people crave. Um, in this social media age, we see all kinds of things. We see fun vacations. We see that lovely massage that the mom down the street got to enjoy. We see the yummy food. We see all these things. Um, and they look wonderful. And we want them. We're not saying that these things are bad things. 
What we're saying is not making them ultimate things. These are not to be the ultimate things in our life. Why? Because they will fade us. They will fail us. They're fading and they're failing. They'll only leave us wanting more. They don't bring any lasting joy. They don't bring any lasting peace or fulfillment. And a life pursuing these things is a life spent trying to fill a bottomless pit. We will always feel empty. The same warning in 1 Peter 2, 11 through 12 in the message says, this world isn't your home, so don't make yourself cozy in it. Don't indulge your ego at the expense of your soul. But here's the promise. I said a warning and a promise. So here's the promise. Here's the good part. Anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. Only Jesus satisfies our deepest desires. Only Jesus is the one who will never fail us. We will never regret choosing him. We will never regret choosing to make our homes with him. He will fill us with the spirit and give us the power to choose obedience, to choose love, to choose walking in the light. And when we do that, we'll find abundant life, abundant life that never ends. Let's pray. Father, thanks for the truth of your word. Thanks for the confidence that we can know you. Thank you for Jesus and the work that he does in our hearts and our lives. Thank you that he is standing before you, advocating for us on our behalf. Remind us that we can come before you to seek mercy and grace in our time of need as we are, um, as we are seeking to walk the way Jesus walked, to love the way he loved. Um, Turn our hearts towards you always, away from the things that fail us, towards the thing that never will. We pray these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen.